0: Um, well, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be with you guys on this day, the Lord's Day. Um, I'm humbled and honored to be just proclaiming God's Word. Um, as I prepared this week, it was just a, a very weighty and daunting uh, task. Um, and just so you know, uh, Tim Keller, who's uh, arguably one of the best preachers of our time, he says that for the first 200 sermons, no matter what you do, your first 200 sermons are going to be terrible. And uh, this is my first, uh, so you get the point. Um, so, uh, all right, well, let's, let's just dig in um, to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Um, if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy, for this is the voice of our Lord. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to pray before I start here. Lord, um, I just ask that you would use me as uh, your vessel um, to lift Christ high so that the people here, myself included, would see and savor Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So this week, as I prepared for the sermon, uh, early in the week, I spent maybe like five or six hours just thinking, praying, studying um, the the text. And uh, on Tuesday, I got to meet with Garrison and, and Brian. Um, and I, I got to kind of go through the ideas that I was having, the thoughts that I was having, um, the direction of the sermon, uh, which wasn't much at the time. Um, and a, as we kind of read through the, the passage together, uh, you know, th- the first thing I said was, Look, I have all these ideas, I don't know where to go. Um, I just need your guys' help. So as we we read over the text together, Garrison pointed out that Christ was mentioned four times in these six verses. And maybe, just maybe, my big idea should be based on him. Um, Wow. Uh, I'm glad that I met with these guys because I totally missed it. I read through this passage over and over and over again And I missed Christ. I mean, I'm not the best at reading comprehension, but wow. So Brian continued uh, by pointing out how the Galatians were so focused on what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing to to be saved, instead of focusing on what Christ has done for them. So... I say that to just say, be thankful that your church leadership has meetings like this in place so that guys like me aren't up here preaching Christless sermons. And I mean that in all sincerity, that it's really easy to get distracted and to look all over the place and miss Christ. So maybe some of you can identify with me. Maybe you're missing the main point. And you need to be reminded to look to Christ alone. I think we can all identify with the Galatians here, looking to what we should and shouldn't be doing instead of looking at what Christ has already done. Even as we gather in this room today, we may be tempted to make this gathering a mere ceremony, a custom that... Somehow it's going to count towards our righteous, righteousness. But instead, we we should be gathering to focus on Jesus. My prayer this morning as I just prayed and, and my goal is that I would put Christ before you. I would, by the Spirit's power, lift him off the pages and present him to you today. And that you would see him and savor him and even receive him today. So just to give a little uh, context and background to where we're at. So we've been going through Galatians for, I think, 15 weeks, uh, maybe 16. I know there's been 15 sermons. Um, so this passage we find ourselves in, where there's six chapters in Galatians. We're kind of between the, the first part and the second part. It's a transitional passage. We're transitioning from the past two chapters, where Paul laid out the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In in the first, maybe uh, what really the last two chapters, and um, even the first two chapters, he kind of laid out that. And we're we're headed into a Christian ethics part of the text, where Paul is saying, "Now, now here's how you should live," um, in this justification by faith alone. So I'm going to kind of look back at what we've learned from the sermons, look, look ahead at just a couple things we might learn um, in the coming sermons, and t- to kind of place us where we're at in this text. So we've already established that Paul's authority is based on his apostleship, and his testimony uh, in, in chapters uh, one and two Make him trustworthy. We've seen that there is only one true gospel. We've discussed what this one true gospel promotes and what it opposes. So it promotes being a servant of Christ, it opposes people pleasing, it promotes salvation by hearing with faith, it opposes salvation by works of the law, it promotes being blessed by faith. It opposes being cursed by the law. It promotes the promise of God through Abraham and Isaac. It opposes the law of man. It promotes sonship, and it opposes slavery. We've also discussed how these truths of the gospel cause us to live. In light of the gospel, we learn that we are to walk in step and defend the truth of the gospel. We remind ourselves that the gospel justifies. We live by promise. We live as sons and not slaves. We follow Paul's example of living free from the law. We live relying on divine grace and not human achievement. So those are things we've, we've learned. Things that are coming... Uh, is how we will hear how this faith working through love will compel us to love our neighbor and bear one another's burdens. Paul will also warn us of the deeds of the flesh and tell us of the fruit the Spirit is producing within us who have faith in Christ. Again, the point of going through that is just to kind of show you where we're at, what, what context we find ourselves in. We're between a lot of propositional truth and a lot of practical living. In this part of the letter that we're reading today, Paul recaps and he looks forward, just like we did. But he does so in a very concise, direct, specific way. He has been giving allegories and and different examples of of what justification by faith alone looks like. But he's going to get really specific here, Um, and I'm going to have to try to convince you that somehow circumcision from 2,000 years ago applies to us here today. Um, And so I'm glad Paul stops us here for a minute. Uh, Dan Turner, who's uh, an elder candidate here, he's in the children's hall today, he shared a phrase with me that I think is helpful here. He says, transition can create temptation. He talks about that in life. And this is the case here. The temptation uh, we would, the, the temptation we have here, would be to look at the next chapter and a half as a list of do's and don'ts that we must follow for salvation. So let us not fall grave, fall into that grave error. So here's my big idea for the morning: have faith in Christ, not your works. Have faith in Christ, not your works. So I'll get to that big idea um, by seeing how, by showing you guys how our passage answers these three two-sided questions. So the first one is, what is slavery and what are its consequences? The second one is, what is freedom and what are its benefits? And the third one is, how does Christ free us from slavery? And keep us there. Or how can we remain free? So the first one, what is slavery and what are its consequences? Uh, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, helps us answer this uh, question about what slavery is in his commentary on the Galatians. He says, Jesus Christ has purchased this freedom with his own blood here's the slavery part, in order to deliver us, not from any bodily or temporal servitude, but from a spiritual and everlasting slavery under powerful tyrants, namely the law, sin, death, and the devil, and so to reconcile us to God, his Father. So slavery is not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about some bodily, temporal slavery that, you know, when we die, uh, you, we'll be free from. He's talking about a spiritual, everlasting slavery of the heart. And So I, I feel like that quote from Luther is helpful in showing us what slavery isn't and, and conversely what it is. Um, so Paul, more specifically, based on what's going on in the churches of Galatia, namely people are going around saying, uh, you're not saved unless you're circumcised. Um, you can't be saved. Uh, we also kind of call this legalism is another word for, for that works righteousness. Um, slavery is trusting in your works for salvation. That's what legalism is. According to this passage, we see that there are people promoting this specific legalism of keeping part of the Jewish ceremonial custom of circumcision as a necessary work for salvation. So that's what slavery is, uh, both kind of high level and also specifically in this passage. Um, So let's look at the consequences of slavery. The consequences of slavery are numerous. We see them... In the passage, uh, Paul in this passage at least provides three uh, consequences, and he uses them as warnings. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but like Paul is pretty ticked off. Like, really, for all you'll see, he's gonna be mad the rest of the book, the rest of the letter. He, it's not a happy letter. It's not a happy occasion that he's writing them on. He's he's mad, and he's giving these as warnings. So the first warning or consequence is that, uh, we find it in verse 2, is that they will lose the advantage of Christ. Now that they say they want the law, the Galatians effectively are saying, I don't need Christ anymore. What benefit does his righteousness offer if I can earn righteousness by my own effort? Second, the second consequence is, We find in verse 3, if they choose to go this route, not only will they not get Christ, but they will also have an obligation to keep the entire law. The problem is is that they won't be able to do this. They can't keep the whole law. So this is suicide. Romans 9 verses 31 and 32 kind of underscore this warning by saying, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Third, the third warning and consequence is that they will become severed from Christ. We find this in verse four, falling away from grace. This is A dangerous place to be. At best, and by best I mean a life of torment, tormented conscience, they will lose their assurance of salvation, and at worst, it means they may not even have salvation. So since our context is a little bit different from the Galatians, and we're not arguing about circumcision versus uncircumcision for salvation, Um, let's look at some different forms of legalism and what they might look like today. Uh, Pastor Garrison helps us with this. A couple weeks ago, he described four aspects of legalism. So let's go through each of them and see kind of what this looks like today. So the first type of legalism he mentioned is Required obedience to religious ceremonial laws and customs for salvation. This could look like church attendance. Um, In Meyer's household, sometimes it looks like never missing family worship. I become a tyrant if we do. Um, You know, in the evangelical world, this maybe looks like the Never missing a daily quiet time, right? So these are some of the customs that we have. Um, maybe it even looks like kind of in our reformed context, because we're cool, it kind of looks like either abs- this, what, this tension between either abstaining from Christian liberties or partaking in Christian liberties, like drinking and smoking and things like that. You know, We, we somehow find these, we, we make this a religious custom. So when we find ourselves here, like the Galatians, it either creates pride and puffs up if we live up to kind of these ceremonial customs or despair if we fail to live up to them. So that's the first type. The second type is obeying the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, thinking the external behavior will save. Examples of this would be not murder, not murdering, but harboring hate and bitterness in your heart. Not committing an act of adultery, but looking upon someone with lust in your heart. Doing religious things with selfish pride, while your heart is far from God. So all of this is kind of hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy. And in Luke 16, 15, uh, chapter 16, verse 15, God says that he hates this hypocrisy. He hates it. Because you're, you're trying to please man, you're trying to show off and have this reputation that everything is good externally, while internally your heart is wicked. So the third aspect is requiring obedience to man-made laws, religious or irreligious, for salvation. So this perhaps is where I struggle the most. I have lots of opinions uh, that I trace back to the wisdom from the Bible. But here, I twist the wisdom and make it law. It looks good on on the surface, but it creates a judgmental heart within me. This can look like parenting decisions, uh, certain house rules, political ideology, career status, educational attainment, so on and so forth, marital status. This creates a judgmental heart and will, will inevitably create division and strife, uh, not only in our homes, but in our church. So we all have opinions about what's best and we must fight against making them law. Where the scriptures remain silent, we should not impose. The last form of legalism we will look at is requiring work or performance for salvation. This is the one upper. So we like to compare ourselves to others when it comes to performance. I don't know if you know this, um, but maybe this wouldn't be one that I would like raise my hand for, but maybe it's the amount of times you've read the Bible or maybe... You know, keeping up with your Bible reading plan from January, which I haven't done. Um, How many Christian books you read this year, or how effective you are at being a spouse or a parent or a student, right? Straight A's or something like that. So, how many kids you have, how many friends you have. You know, you get the picture that this performance based is, is just all about proving ourselves worthy and better than others, we often I mean, the only way we can really do this is by comparing ourselves to other sinful, fallen people, right? Like, the way we fight this is compare yourself to Jesus. It'll just kind of show you how pathetic you really are and how pathetic I really am. So just to so kind of to summarize that sla- the slavery portion. It's a subtle thing. This isn't something that, like, we, we, we can see and it's, it's out here in the open. This is a subtle thing of the heart. It's unseen. And if you're not looking to Christ and you're not really sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you won't see it. You'll miss it, just like the Galatians are. Ray Ortland uh, illustrated how dangerous this is. In a 2011 conference talk, an excerpt from that, he says, "...justification by our own righteousness is not a Galatian problem only or a Catholic problem only. It is a human problem universally. It is a Christian problem. You and I are always, at best, an inch away from its dark powers. Indeed, it is possible to preach and defend the doctrine of grace justification... But do it out of motives of self justification and with its bitter fruit. This kind of disconnect is when bad things start happening in our churches that sincerely love the Lord. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to transition into the freedom side of things that's the slavery. So, freedom is w- what is freedom and what are its benefits? Freedom is trusting in Christ alone for salvation and living in light of that. When we have faith in Christ, we are freed from the bondage of sin, Satan, death, and the law. Freedom is summed up in the statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain, from Philippians. According... So that's kind of what freedom is. According to this passage, the benefits of freedom are at least twofold. Um, First, that we have a hope of righteousness. We see that in verse 5. And Romans 8, 23 through 25 describes this great hope that comes through faith in Christ alone. It says, But we ourselves... Who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, The, the redemption, sorry, for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we we await. For it with patience. So again, it's it's about the inward, unseen hope of faith. But if we, um, so since Christ is our righteousness, we now look forward to the day of judgment. Does that sound weird? Like the judgment day? We're actually like excited about it? The only way we can be excited about it is just like we sung if we trust in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne the other benefit that our faith working through love the other benefit is that our faith working through love counts we see this in verse 6 in Ephesians it talks about how we're God's workmanship made for the good works he set before us to walk in So instead of wallowing in our self-righteousness and our self-pity, we will now get to participate in God's plan of redemption and renewal. So I had this, uh, as Garrison mentioned, our fifth child, Augustine Spurgeon Myers, um, is named after a couple great theologians, preachers that I I really like, so I had to quote them for my first sermon. So, in his book, A Good Start, and speaking about some advantage some advantages a young man in Christ has, Charles Spurgeon shows us the beauty of the freedom we have in Christ. It reads like this: First, he, being the young man in Christ, has this advantage that the greatest burden of his mortal life is off his shoulders. He is less weighted in the race of life than the common run of men. For the main load of life is sin. The consciousness of having broken the law of God. The consciousness that all is not right. And this is gone from him. He has looked to Jesus, the great sin bearer. And has seen his sin transferred to the great substitute and put away. And now, being justified by faith, he has peace with God through Jesus Christ his Lord. That great load has gone. Oh, when a man begins to think over his past life, it will make him tremble. Unless... He knows by the assuring witness of the Holy Spirit, well, unless he is able to see Christ on the cross putting away sin, and unless he knows by the assuring witness of the Holy Spirit that his transgressions were thus put away, then the nightmare of a half-awakened conscience is gone. The dreadful burden from the Spirit is lifted, and he is another man. A man with this grand advantage that whatever burdens he has to bear, the intolerable weight of sin is gone. Forever gone. I love that quote. So, we're landing on my final kind of question, which is how does Christ set us free from slavery And how can we remain free? So Christ sets us free through the spirit of faith. Through the spirit and by faith. I'm going to share a couple verses uh, that kind of shows us how this works. So kind of follow along with me, track along with me here. So in John 1, 12 and 13, it reads this. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So all who received him, that is, all who believed in his name, that is, all who had faith, were adopted as children of God. So we know from our Galatian study the past few weeks that Children of God are free. They're not slaves anymore. So if we kind of, so there's some, I'm trying to connect some dots here, but if, if we connect that and see in 2 Corinthians uh, 3.17, I think it helps kind of illustrate this even more fully. It says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Freedom. We see that the spirit of God produces the faith that produces the freedom of sonship. So we see we we kind of see this connection that we're free by by the spirit through the spirit by faith in Christ and this is not our own doing. This is a gift from God. This faith that we have is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And it makes us sons of God. And so we're free. So the text kind of shows us, so that's, that's how Christ sets us free. He sets us free uh, through the Spirit, by faith, in Him. The text shows us at least two ways we remain free. First, we stand firm. Not submitting to the law again. Verse 1. So we must stand firm, but we must also stand still. Just as Moses told the Israelites when they were fleeing slavery in Egypt, he says, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. So stand firm and let the Lord fight. The Lord alone secures our salvation. The other way to remain free is to hope in the righteousness of Christ. We see that in verse 5. We simply must behold His glory, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of slavery to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He wouldn't be our Lord if we didn't need Him. So... Augustine of Hippo, the 4th century bishop in North Africa, in his autobiography, Confessions, drives this point home. He says, you are my Lord because you have no need of my goodness. So behold his goodness and glory and you will remain free. So in conclusion, I want to share this Jesus with you, put him before you. Jesus is the only true free person, the God, the Trinity, in the universe. He's the only one who is free, yet he came down from heaven under the law, yet he, he wasn't a slave to the law because you're only a slave to the law if you're unrighteous and guilty. So he was free from the law, but he came under the law and did what we could not do. He kept the entire law. He fulfilled and broke it. He was righteous before his father. He did all of this And then what? He received the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. And he did this freely. He laid down his own life. No one took it from him. He laid this down and substituted himself on the cross by giving us his righteousness and taking our sinfulness if we have faith in him. He was severed from the Father so that we could become his sons. And the only response that's appropriate is faith. If you call yourself a Christian, but the Spirit is convicting you of relying on your own works, turn from your works. They're filthy rags, as we read in Isaiah. Isaiah. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you're relying on your goodness compared to others or whatever, repent and behold the goodness and glory of Jesus. The only thing that counts is your response to Christ. Nothing else matters. Receive him today. Receive him every day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I pray today that those who already know you would be drawn closer to you subjectively, that they would feel your presence more through the person and work of Jesus. And I pray those who don't know you here today, Lord, that they would turn from their sin and their man-made laws and they would trust in the only one who can set them free. I pray this in Jesus' holy and righteous name. Amen.